And let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, which can be found on page 1177 of your Pew Bible. The Apostle Paul had a method to his missionary work. He would enter a town. He would often begin with the Jewish community in that town. He would teach them, and he would perform miracles in order to confirm that teaching. And when people were converted, he would set up a local church. Then, if he was there long enough... He might even help them in the selection of local elders to oversee that new church. You can clearly see this pattern throughout the book of Acts and in his many letters. In some cities, Paul would be present for years, in which case he'd have a lot of direct input into the formation of that local church. In other cases, persecution or calling from God would lead him away rather quickly. In those cases, he would send back letters or helpers or both to guide the newborn churches. These helpers or pastors, unlike the local elders, were not necessarily born in that particular town. However, they are called elders and were to work alongside the local eldership what we call today in our church a session. Paul relied especially on two men to do this pastoral work. They are Timothy and Titus. Timothy, as we've seen, was Paul's spiritual son. Paul writes of Timothy's immense value for ministry to the Philippians, where he says to them that he is anxious to send Timothy to them as quickly as possible. Timothy is also a co-sender of the letter to the Thessalonians, the letter to the Philippians, and the letter to the Colossians. So Timothy played a big role in the edification and growth of the New Testament church. Paul felt that he could trust Timothy to faithfully carry on the ministry that he had begun. And we've noted that ever since then, pastors take their cue from Timothy. Whether Timothy ever was actually or formally called a pastor is debatable, but the connection is undeniable. He is a man sent to a location to serve alongside local elders. He is to give himself constantly to teaching and to prayer. And so from the earliest records we have, these letters have always been called the pastoral epistles. Here, more than anywhere else, we have the role of the pastor laid out in simplicity and in depth. Timothy's calling, his calling in this letter is intimidating. He's called to serve in the troubled church in Ephesus. The Ephesian church was born out of the extensive three-year ministry of the Apostle Paul, Ephesus, you might remember, was on the western shore of what we call today Turkey. It was the capital of the region and home to one of the greatest pagan temples in all the world, where Diana, the queen of heaven, was worshipped. Paul's three years in Ephesus was marked by extraordinary miracles and extended teaching. It's hard to imagine a more promising beginning. 
However, 1 Timothy shows us just how relentless Satan is in his attempts to lead the church astray. In just a few years, false teaching had crept into the Ephesian church. To make matters worse, the false teaching came from some of the local elders. As we've noticed all along, God's response through Paul is not to give up on the idea of eldership or the idea of an organized church. Rather, to combat these false sons, Paul sent a true son, Timothy, to fight for the truth. This is then a pastoral epistle. Would you then stand as we read together 1 Timothy 1? We'll begin in verse 3 and read to verse 17 for context. Though our focus this morning will be just on two verses, verses 15 and 16, but for our reading this morning, beginning in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. Desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we come once again in the name of Jesus asking that you would open your word to us, that we might be rebuked and corrected 
encouraged and lifted up, that you would do all these things in our midst this morning, knowing what each person needs, and that you would do all these things so that your Son, who is the Savior of sinners, might be honored and glorified. For we ask it and pray it for his sake and in his name alone. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, you'll remember that Paul introduced himself as an apostle, and he says, I'm an apostle by the command of Jesus Christ. We noted before that Paul doesn't begin his letters accidentally. The very words he uses to introduce the letter are intentional, very intentional. He wants to make the point right at the beginning of the letter that his authority is that of an apostle. It's foundational for the church. As he teaches later, more explicitly in 1 Corinthians, he has the God-given authority to lay the foundation. And all elders and pastors following after him must either build on his foundation or fall away. Paul then names in verse 2 Timothy as his true son or child in the faith. Although this letter is addressed to Timothy, Paul expects that the whole church would read it. And so at times, at times, you'll notice this, the letter is quite formal and official almost. By calling Timothy his true heir or true child, Paul is letting the church in Ephesus know that Timothy is the true heir to his miracle-working ministry, unlike the false elders who have crept in to to deceive and mislead the church. This letter would have been a letter of commendation, something like an official paperwork, allowing Timothy to begin his ministry there. Then in verses 3 through 7, Paul urges Timothy to take charge of the situation in Ephesus. In verse 3, you see that he tells Timothy to silence heterodoxy. That's the literal word there in the Greek that's translated as other teaching. Hetero meaning other as in heterosexual and doxa doxa meaning truth. So other teaching that is happening, he's to silence it. And then Paul describes this false teaching as speculation and endless genealogies. In bold contrast to that, verse 5, the true teaching of the gospel brings forth love from a pure heart with a good conscience and a sincere faith. Then in the remaining verses 7 through 11 that we've looked at, Paul describes the false elders as men who want to be known. They want to be known as law teachers, but ironically, they don't know how to use the law properly. And it's this line of thought, it's why he's talking about this, that he's led into the doctrine-rich verses that are verses 12 through 17. Ironically, you see, Paul had been, Paul had been what these elders now want to be. Paul had been a notable, renowned religious scholar and zealot. He had persecuted the infant church, but had been transformed when he was confronted with real resurrection power in the presence of Jesus Christ. Unlike his misguided law-keeping, Jesus brought real grace and real power. In verse 14, we have Paul's wonderful testimony, later taken up by John Bunyan when he wrote his own biography. The verse reads literally, the first word in Greek, superabounding. 
superabounding, overflowing was the grace of our Lord for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Paul is telling the wonderful story of his conversion now in chapter 1, not because Timothy is unaware. Timothy's had this story memorized for a long time, no doubt. So Paul is doing it here, not for Timothy, but because Paul's conversion exposes the absolute folly of the false elders who desire to go backwards and be law teachers. You know, here the false elders are obsessing over genealogies and mythological questions about the Old Testament when Jesus has been raised from the dead. You see, they've taken the gospel, which God designed to overthrow sinful mankind, a gospel designed to bring radical conversion and new life, and they've laid that aside in order to teach nuances of the Old Testament law. And no one feels this more acutely. The tragedy of this and the horror of this, no one feels it more acutely No one can speak to this more clearly than Paul. Now in our verses this morning, we'll be looking at verses 15 and 16. Paul proclaims the doctrine, the truths that his conversion was designed to underline. Here is what the false teachers are missing. Here is sound doctrine, faithful words to combat their useless and arrogant teachings. Notice with me in just these two verses three things that I think we have to see Paul doing here. First, he does an affirmation. Second, he gives a proposition. And third, he does an application. So affirmation, proposition, application. Let's look at them together. First, look at the apostles' affirmation. It's quite remarkable. It it starts at the beginning of verse 15 where Paul writes this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In the context of false teaching and confusion, Paul begins by saying, this message I'm about to remind you of is approved. This saying is worthy of your wholehearted acceptance. Now, if you think about this for a moment, it's really quite striking. The Ephesian church had sayings. This saying, he says, is faithful. They had a catechism or some kind of set of sayings that they must have used in worship or maybe in conversation or maybe when they were training their kids. We don't know, but they had sayings. The rest of the pastoral epistles confirm this because there are four more faithful sayings, Paul using these same words, and they're quoted by Paul four more times in these letters. The rest of the New Testament and early church history reveal a similar pattern. For example, we have a hymn to Christ in Philippians, which is still used today for apologetics. And we have statements by Paul in the books of Corinthians that he calls deliverances or summaries of his teaching. One example is 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance 
what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. We also know from history that the church began writing confessions, hymns, and catechisms almost immediately. The Didache, or Didache, as you might have seen it, heard it called, is probably the earliest example of this that we have. It's a catechism dated to the first century. It may have actually been known to the apostles. It's that ancient. Quickly following that work, that catechism, there were the early councils of the church, the earliest described in Acts 15, and others soon followed. Now, why is the church doing this? Why do we teach our kids the catechism, recite the Apostles' Creed on Sunday nights, and use a confession to train and hold accountable our elders? As Paul will mention later in chapter 2, the church has always done this because we are aware that Satan is always trying to pollute and corrupt the gospel. You see, that's why we need faithful sayings. Remember, our first parents, we saw this a few times ago, remember our first parents fell by becoming heretics first. The teaching seemed wise to them. The serpent seemed kind to them. The tree looked good. Satan worked hard then, and he works hard now to make the new doctrine sound good even better than God's truth. Sometimes he does major modifications. Sometimes he just works more subtly. In fact, Satan is so committed to this work that he even tried the heresy trick on Jesus during Jesus' wilderness temptation. I don't know if you've ever given this any thought, but let's just remember together that Satan actually quoted scripture to Jesus in order to tempt him. That's how committed he is to twisting the scriptures and destroying the church's theology and belief. Here's my point. We need to accept as both individuals, as families, and as a church that Satan is primarily committed to perverting our faith. It is a primary strategy, not a sideline, not something he does occasionally, a primary strategy. Darkness wants to get a hold of your mind and the minds of your kids and twist the scriptures or even remove them and replace them with new theology. In response, we need powerful, succinct, faithful sayings, primarily God's word and the memorization of God's word, that are worthy of our full and universal acceptance. Under God's word, I would also recommend to you, under God's word, our catechism and the early creeds of the church. So Paul begins with this strong word of affirmation. This saying, unlike the other things you're hearing, is faithful and it's worthy of your whole self. It's worthy of your full acceptance. And he'll go on to give us four more little sayings that he says we also should accept and embrace. 
He then moves on, though, quickly in verse 15 to give the saying itself. So here's the proposition. That was the affirmation. Now the proposition, it comes in verse 15. Here is the saying that is worth our full acceptance and embrace. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In just a moment, we'll get to the bit at the end where Paul adds his own comment by saying, of whom I'm chief. But that was Paul's personal comment. We'll get to that in a moment. The faithful saying, properly speaking, formally speaking, is simply this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, the temptation may be, and maybe you're struggling with this right now, to say, well, pastor, we know all that. That's that's the most obvious saying. Nothing to see here. Let's just sort of move on. But we need to pause here. We need to pause here. This little saying packs a big punch. First, it begins with words. It begins with words that sound like the gospel of John. Did you notice that? Christ Jesus came into the world. Now, no one, at least I hope not, no one has ever said Matthew Fisher came into the world, right? No one says that. I was just born. No one is saying of us that we were coming into the world. You see, the way it's worded here is designed to underline for us, to remind us that Jesus existed prior to his incarnation. He was alive prior to his birth in Bethlehem. If I can put it this way, he was before he came. He was before he came. Here's how John put it in John 1 verse 9. The true light, John writes, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So just in this opening words, this opening little bit, Paul is teaching them to confess their faith in a way that will oppose many heresies that are coming against Christ's church, even today. Even today, this is a vital confession. Paul then goes on and adds to that simplicity but depth by saying, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Again, our first instinct, maybe this is your first instinct, may be to say, well, nothing to see here. I know this. Simple stuff. This is obvious. But once again, it is actually far from simple and far from obvious. Remember, first of all, what it meant to Paul to say this. In Paul's world, in Paul's culture, the word sinner was a term you reserved for people who practiced openly immoral lifestyles. Today, because we've been around and thinking about these things for 2,000 years, we use the word sinner very broadly. We point out that everyone is a sinner. We, we quote Romans 3.23 as we did this morning, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. However, in Paul's world, that word sinner was meant only for the worst of people. Paul had devoted his life, remember, before Christ, Paul had devoted his life to acts of extreme religious zeal in the hope that when the Messiah arrived to destroy the world, the Romans and all the pervets and all the people he thought were sinners, he, as a a zealous Jew, would be saved. Sinners would be cast into oblivion, 
and people like him would be enthroned. Read the Gospels, you'll see this is exactly what all the Pharisees Jesus meets think. This is their mindset. But then Jesus came. The Messiah came, and he so often passed by the stuffy religious people, and he went to the sinners. On one occasion, you might recall, a man, just like Paul, a Pharisee, um, came to Jesus and started chastising him, correcting him. Don't you know that that woman who's touching you is a sinner? Others asked, how can he eat with sinners? And one of the greatest, most memorable And I think most world-changing moments in the New Testament, Jesus sat down with a very um, exalted Jewish religious leader at night. His name was Nicodemus. What follows, John chapter 3, has become maybe the most well-known place in the Bible. Nicodemus was shocked to hear that Jesus had come into the world to save the world. For Nicodemus... The world always meant non-Jews and sinners. And here Jesus was telling him, a righteous Jew, that he must be born again and that God's long-awaited salvation was coming for and to sinners. All this, brothers and sisters, and much more, lies behind these words, this remarkable little saying that the Messiah that the Messiah, God's only son, in the words of John chapter 3, did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is, as Matthew Poole once said, the gospel in one sentence, and as Thomas Watson called it, this sentence is a lovely harp to take away our sadness and fear. Christ Jesus came to save us sinners. Today, this one sentence divides the entire Western world. Every major Protestant denomination, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Episcopalians, every Protestant denomination in the Western world has now split over this faithful saying. Our church exists because like so many other mainline churches, the original Presbyterian church we were a part of, decided to deny this little word. In fact, it all began on the mission field when the Presbyterian church began sending missionaries who openly stated that people did not need to be saved. Yes, they would go to the field to help with medicine or education, but they said, let's hear no more of the blood or of sin. It would be hard, probably impossible, even today to find a faithful saying more controversial, more divisive, because here, just here in this little faithful saying, we've come to the heart of it all, haven't we? Are men and women sinners? Do they need to be saved or just improved? Here, by God's grace alone, we still preach that faithful saying. We preach amazing grace. One commentator puts it so well. He says, grace is amazing because it saves wretches, not because it puts a final polish on nice people. You cannot be saved if you're not lost. You cannot be freed unless you are enslaved. So we have seen the apostles 
Paul his affirmation. He says, this saying is faithful and deserves your whole heart. Second, we've seen his proposition, the saying itself, Jesus came into the world for the purpose not of putting on a final polish to our already sparkling hearts, but rather to save sinners. Now, lastly, thirdly, and with tremendous power, see, and I hope you can even feel it, how Paul appropriates all this for himself, how he takes it to himself. This faithful saying is not just out there in his speculations. It isn't just formal theology, what he believes on paper, as it were. No, here is how he takes the truth to himself, appropriating it fully for his own life, clutching it to his own chest until it leaves a mark. Beginning at the end of verse 15, he writes that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the chief, Jesus Christ might display his perfect long-suffering patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Here is a man, Paul, who put people in prison for heresy. He contributed to the execution of Christians, including Stephen, who was mid-vision with the appearance of an angel while people stoned him. Here is someone who thought of himself his whole life as a uniquely religious and pure man. And it is that man, that man, who is now saying, I am the chief of sinners. This faithful saying is not just out there or in a book somewhere or in his hymnal. It is living and breathing in him. He says, I am the poster boy. I am the example. I am the living evidence. You see, in a moment of shock, a moment we can barely imagine, religious zealot Paul had met the risen Jesus on the road. And suddenly, all the prostitutes and tax collectors that he had sneered at his entire life, those people seemed relatively okay and decent in comparison to himself. All his life, he and his religious fellows had called people like Mary Magdalene and Matthew, they called them all the time sinners, those sinners. But in that moment of revelation on the road, he knew what each of us must know or come to know if we are to become true Christians. If you really know Christ, then this confession has been, it must be, clutched to your own chest and pressed on your own heart in such a way that you cry out, Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the chief. You see, it's not enough. It's not enough to espouse, to confess the right doctrine. It's not enough to have your theological T's crossed and your I's dotted. Your theology must be alive with real repentance, real love, real longing. It must be taken into your own heart. And can we doubt, even for a second, that this is what happened to Paul 
as he takes upon himself that hated word, that terrible word, sinner, and applies it to himself for the first time. And then he looks back. He looks back over the whole course of Jesus' life and sees that again and again it is the sinners alone that are saved and how he wants to be in their number now. Only moments ago, his friends and colleagues were the upper classes of faithful Judaism, their spotless robes, their perfect public piety, their well-read books. And now in one awesome moment, he is suddenly with Mary Magdalene, that demon-possessed fortune teller and almost certainly prostitute who first announced the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And he's with Matthew, that cheating, traitorous Jew who extorted his own people for Rome, tax collector and sinner. What was it like the first time? What was it like the first time when he said, or maybe he just heard it in his own mind, Messiah Joshua came into the world to save sinners? What a confession! What a confession. That confession cost him his life. What will it cost you? Have you taken this faithful saying deep into your own heart yet? If you have, you know that it burns and it heals. You'll find yourself saying, indeed, pastor, it is worthy of full acceptance. It is worthy of all my heart. If, on the other hand, you are here and you're doubting whether this Jesus is really yours, if you struggle with assurance or if you're witnessing to someone in your life and it it seems like they will never respond, Paul gives this wonderful encouragement. Jesus came to save sinners and he chose me, Paul, as exhibit A. Why? Verse 16 tells us, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. As John Bunyan reminds us, this is why the gospel had to be preached first in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection. Why there first? Because the people who had just chanted for Christ's death, who had just said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children, those people who had just cursed themselves in the most horrific way imaginable, those people had to be the first to hear the good news of salvation. Why? So that in the ages to come, we might sing of the patience of our sweet Savior. He's been so patient with me. He's been so patient with you. He's been so patient. And we can and say and sing together from the heart this morning, Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am chief. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the deep doctrinal riches that are embedded in these verses But we pray that those things that are embedded would leap forth with light and heat into our own hearts. That this cry that was wrenched from the Apostle Paul through so much suffering, through his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, that that same cry would be wrenched from us, from every heart here, as we come, maybe for the first time, to see that we are not the decent people. 
We are not in need of just a final polish, but rather we are in need of a salvation and that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like us. To those here who belong to him, fill them with joy. Remind them of just how patient and kind their sweet Jesus truly is. And for those who don't know him and maybe even questioning this hour, whether he can save them, whether their sin is not too great, their questions too big, remind them of how you saved the Apostle Paul for the very purpose of exhibiting your power and grace and give them courage to run after Christ. Do all these things, Father, we pray, that Christ might be lifted up and all might be drawn to him. For we pray it in his name. Amen.